0: Well, good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And if you're visiting, we're glad you're with us. Thanks for joining us here near the beginning of a new year. Uh, I will make one public service announcement just just to make sure everybody got it. The the Mondays really are having twins, like two children. So we're really excited for them. Camper wanted me to explain the last few weeks if he seemed a little absent-minded and may well for the next few months to give him a little bit of grace. So they're very excited about that. Uh, you find us now, again, as we come into New Year, we're starting a new series. We're going to be looking at the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark uh, in the New Testament. Uh, the second book, if you're uh, using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 836 of your Pew Bible. And this morning we'll be in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. As we step into Mark. Actually, the, we'll be looking at the first half of Mark uh, up now until the end of May, and then we'll uh, pick back up with, with Mark at a later date. But but what are... The, As we step into Mark, we're stepping into what was likely the first of the four biblical gospels to be written. Uh, It's also the shortest, it's the most concise, and it is the most driven by Jesus' actions and words as He powerfully walks through His ministry and explains who He is in word and in deed. It is a great place for us to start as we look again at who is Jesus and take a very di- direct and deliberate look at who He is and who He claimed to be and what He did. So that's what we're going to be doing these next few months. Uh, just by way of resources, if you were to go on our website, you'll see under the resource section a uh, page uh, about the preaching series. And there's listed there some other books you could be reading, other resources you might find interesting if you'd like to do a little bit of extra study al- along the way. But Mark is where we're going to be. Let me pray for us and we'll, uh, we'll dive right in. Let's pray. Father, as we come to You this morning, we ask that that You would open up to us Your Word as we open up the book of Mark and as we read of Jesus' words, His actions, His deeds, His life about the coming and presence of our King, for that is who You proclaim Yourself to be. So I pray uh, this morning in these coming weeks that You'd open our eyes, that You'd open our hearts you be with us as we wrestle through the reality of who you are and the implications for us. Whether we come to this this morning as people who have long known and loved you, or as we, if we come to you this morning as people uh, maybe who are opening up the book of Mark for the first time, maybe hearing for the very first time some of who Jesus says that he is and what he does, and for the very first time wrestling with what does that mean for us. Wherever we are, meet us, Lord, we ask, in the name of the Jesus who is proclaimed here in your word. Amen. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So to it we, we turn this morning. So I was thinking about the, the events that take place in Mark chapter 1. Uh, he, Mark goes to, it, to pains to tell us that something momentous is happening here. As I was thinking about this week, I uh, had a conversation with a, with a friend of mine here in town. And uh, this friend of mine uh, grew up in Catonsville, uh, Maryland. And, and he went th- through high school and college in, in the 19 and through the 1960s, uh, and, and he was telling me about some of the things that happened uh, in his lifetime and in that decade in particular. Uh, things that many of us here will, will remember firsthand, though, though I'm not among you, but many of us will. And he talked about how, uh, in November 1963, he remembers seeing the funeral train carrying the body of JFK as it passed through Baltimore on the way to DC, where uh, John F. Kennedy was going to be buried. Uh, he talked about, you know, remembering the, the assassination of Martin Luther King on April 4th, 1968. Later that year, watching a funeral train again, this time Robert Kennedy on June 8th of 1968, as he his body was taken uh, to DC to be buried as well. And then, in the midst of this, he, he tells me the story about uh, having graduated from high school and started college. He said that it had gotten to the point in the draft for Vietnam that everyone was being drafted. That the, the very fact that you're in school was 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 not enough to to spare you from that. And he began to be nervous about what might happen. He and his friends and uh, was called up and, and heard that he was he was I think it's called the A list. He was on the, the next list, the next group to go, and he was expecting to hear the call any day. Instead, on uh, May seventeenth, 1968, uh, there in Catonsville, um, Father Philip Berrigan and uh, eight other people, the Catonsville Nine, broke into a selective service uh, building, and they went up the stairs and grabbed some boxes of uh, selective service cards. They ran out into the parking lot. They threw homemade napalm on them and burned them, and then were arrested. And the weeks went by, and my friend was never called back. About being drafted. In fact, no one in his high school graduating class was called. And they were almost unique in America for that. He lived in the middle of momentous times. Some of the most significant times in the history of our country. And as we were talking about it, he said, you know, my kids will dare to come and ask me about what it was like to live through those days. He said, I, I'd have to sort of say, I don't really remember... <laughs> Because he talked about his own experience leaving high school and going into college and talking about how in the midst of such a momentous time that it is so easy to almost be unaware of what's going on around you, especially when momentous things are happening every day. And he says it's in looking back he realizes just what was going on at the time. But something huge was happening in our country and in his life. And in some ways, at the moment, he missed it. And Mark opens up telling us about momentous events. And he tells us this so that we won't miss it. In fact, he tells us this so that in a paraphrase of the words of his main character here, John the Baptist, that we will wake up and pay attention. For God is at work. And the Lord, our King, is coming. That's what this passage is about. And as we see him making that point, we're going to see three things here. We're going to see uh, Mark at the very beginning here talking to us about the messenger of the King. And about the story of the king and about the hunger for the king. Okay, so first we see the messenger of the king. John the Baptist is the one who steps onto the stage here, front and center, in these first eight verses of Mark. John, we read the description of him. He's he's, uh, dressed in in camel hair, uh, not the fine camel hair coats. I see a a few of them out here, uh, you know, the rough, crazy looking stuff. And he's out in the wilderness and he's baptizing people, and he's eating locusts and wild honey. And we look at that and think, that is just strange. But the people of that time would have looked at that, and they would have thought, wow, that is just strange. (laughs) But honestly, more than that for them, because when they see John the Baptist, the way he is dressed, what he is preaching, the way he is acting, they would have said, there is a prophet among us. There is a prophet. God is speaking and He's at work. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you know there, there are books of the prophets here. And, and, and we can read lots of stories of God's prophets, His appointed people, coming to the people and proclaiming God's Word to them. But the thing is, when John's audience heard Him, they heard Him after over 400 years of silence. Because when you get to the end of what we refer to as the Old Testament, we, we find Israel... After generations and generations of wandering from their God, God has brought punishment onto the nation by allowing them to be taken away into slavery, into the land of Babylon, under the hand of ultimately of King Nebuchadnezzar in the year 586 BC. Comes in, he overthrows Jerusalem and he takes everyone into captivity. 70 years later, the king of Babylon begins to let uh, the Israelites trickle back to their homeland and rebuild the temple and rebuild their lives and their culture there. And after that period of exile, 400 years of this process of God's people going back and rebuilding but no word from God. And in this period of time, though they're back in the land, they're anything but free when the New Testament dawns there God's people Israel they're under the thumb of Rome. Their empires would dominates everything about their lives. Anything but free. And silent, no word from God, until John the Baptist steps on the scene. Prepare the way for Israel. Make his paths straight. Over 400 years, that is um, even longer than the amount of time that separates us from uh, the first Europeans that stepped onto Jamestown Island here 400 years ago. When I first moved to Williamsburg, I I was working on campus at William & Mary with students. And I I remember as I was getting used to the campus and life here, I I walk out of one of the buildings and I look across Richmond Road from the campus and I see Wawa, a convenience store. And out of Wawa comes this guy dressed in colonial garb, you know, drinking a cup of Wawa coffee. (laughs) And I thought, I live in a strange, strange place. (laughs) But you see, for uh, these people, it's as if the, the real deal, the real colonial guy stepped across the street from CW and into the rest of Williamsburg and said, the time has come, 400 years of silence, and now God's voice breaking through. And he says that he is a messenger. He is one who comes to give them news about another one, a greater one, one who will come after him. John says, it's not about me. It is about this one who is to come. And he says, this one who is coming, I am unfit even to stoop down and untie the sandals on his feet. And, and just to do that would have been repugnant to his whole audience because only the lowliest, meanest of slaves would ever have to do something like that. And he says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down to the one who is coming, but he says, I've got to tell you this, he is coming now. Listen to me, hear me, pay attention, he says, the king is coming. John the Baptist, the messenger of the king. What he comes and shows us here in these first few verses, and what Mark shows us is not just the messenger of the king, but the story of the king. Because we we read right here that uh, John the Baptist doesn't just simply come out of the blue, What in the world is going on here? Who is this strange man? And what could God possibly be doing now? But rather, they look and they hear the preaching of John the Baptist and they think, not what a strange thing, but you're kidding me, at last. This is what we were expecting. Because God has been telling a story that God's people knew. It stretches back all the way before creation. God creating a world and creating mankind in relationship with Him. That relationship being broken by sin. And God taking step after step after centuries upon centuries of bringing his people to himself. God appearing to Abraham and saying, Abraham, out of you, you, this lone pagan guy out in the middle of nowhere, I'm going to bring you into a promised land and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And you and your offspring after you will be a blessing to the entire world. He says, I'm doing it through you. God begins his work. We read of uh, Moses as God calls him to bring God's people in captivity in Egypt for 400 years out of slavery. He comes and says, God is at work now. He is setting you free. He brings them into the promised land and year after year of struggling to actually obey God. God giving them kings who fall and fail and struggle. Finally going into exile, all this time realizing we are in need of something more. God has begun something in us. He has begun something around us. And He is doing something, but He hasn't finished it yet. And we are waiting. We are waiting for the true King. The one who won't fail us like all our other kings. We are waiting for the true prophet. The one who will come and lead us home. We are waiting for the true priest. The one who will bring a reconciliation that cannot be broken. See, he came and said, the king is coming. He quotes here, Mark does for us in verses 2 and 3, uh, a quote from Isaiah. It's actually a composite of quotes from uh, Exodus, Malachi, and Isaiah 40, chapter uh, chapter 40, verse 3. It says this, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And it's interesting that, Mark begins his gospel by quoting the Old Testament like this. Because the truth is, there are are not many Old Testament direct quotes in the book of Mark. And the reason is because Mark was writing not for a Jewish audience, but he was writing for a Gentile, non-Jewish audience in Rome. He was writing to people that didn't grow up with this stuff. And you know, that's really good news for uh, many of us, because he he was not writing to the kids that got the star in Sunday school growing up. He's not writing to the kids that had the great church upbringing. He's writing to the ones that have no idea of what's going on, that God was calling. The ones who are from the outside, who weren't a part of any sort of religious insider group, he's coming to them and saying, let me tell you the story. Jesus has come, not only for the religious people, but for people like you, the ones on the outside that haven't heard one word of this. And that might be you today. First time to crack open the book of Mark. Mark tells us this message of salvation is for us. But you see, when Mark retells us and says this is the culmination of a story that God has been telling for eons, there is a twist here that would have been a complete surprise to Mark's audience or to John's audience as he comes and preaches. One that many of them likely did not grasp at the moment. Because when he quotes Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He's saying John the Baptist is the one who is coming to make that very proclamation to prepare the way for Jesus. But if you were to go back to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and read this in the Old Testament, you would see then when it says, prepare the way for the Lord, you would see Lord written in all capital letters, because it's, that's the way in English we render God's personal name, Yahweh. He says, prepare the way for Yahweh, make his path straight. In other words, not only is a great man coming to bring rescue to you, he says, God is coming to you. God is coming to your rescue. And Mark says, Isaiah talks about God coming into the city. It was talking about Jesus. God coming in the flesh. God coming to his own people. God taking on humanity and coming to save us in the most surprising way. Mark opens up by saying this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And gospel is a shorthand term in the book of Mark for God's salvation through Jesus. That's the gospel, the good news that's being proclaimed here. Because gospel means exactly that, good news. And those would have been words that would have rung familiar in the ears of Mark's Roman uh, audience. Because they had heard about good news as well. The emperors were proclaimed as good news for the people. There's an inscription from uh, the year 9 B.C. in Asia Minor that was dug up that says this about the birth of uh, the emperor Caesar Augustus. It says, The birthday of the God was for the world the good news of joyful tidings which had been proclaimed on his account. See, Caesar Augustus has been born. God has been born. It is good news. But you see, Mark says, no, no, no. Jesus has come, the Lord has returned, and it is true good news. Finally, he says, at the end of our passage, verse 8, when he talks about this, he says, I, I'm baptizing you with water, but he says, the one coming after me, this one will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And straight through the Old Testament, it is always God himself, who is the bestower of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of his presence, intimately tied with his people. He's the one who gives it. And Mark says, the one coming after me, this Lord who is coming, He is going to pour out the Holy Spirit on us. God Himself, the King, is coming in the person of Jesus. Get ready. He says, the day is at hand. Prepare yourselves. So we've got the messenger of the King and the story of the King. And finally we see here in this passage the hunger for the King. Because John started this enormous, powerful, and politically threatening lay renewal movement. Because John goes out into the wilderness and he is preaching. And as you see, uh, Mark says, you know, in his kind of literary hyperbole, he says all of Judea and Jerusalem was coming out to him. And the other gospels say similar things. Crowds were coming out to him. They were flocking to hear this message that John was proclaiming. Because somehow... John was touching on a nerve that ran very deep for God's people. One of longing and of hunger. Could it be? Could it be that God really is going to complete His work? Could it be that we are really living in the day when God Himself, our King, is returning? Could it be? And they flock to John. Because they were hungry. They were spiritually hungry. They were hungry for the return of their King. Now how do you know how do I know if we are spiritually hungry people as well? Well, we see three ways here, I, th- I think, in our passage. First, these people came out into the wilderness. They came out into the wilderness. Now, maybe when we hear wilderness, we, you know, we think of the Rocky Mountains or something and you know, all the grandeur of nature. When, when they would have thought of and experienced wilderness, wilderness was not the place of abundance. It was the place of scarcity. It was the place where there weren't enough natural resources to sustain life. It was the place where things were spare and sparse and stripped away. In the Old Testament, it's it's a place of the testing and refinement of God's people. When God first called his people in Exodus out of slavery in Egypt, he promises them this new land where they will have all they need and they rebel against him. They won't follow his command to enter the land and so what he says to them is in response to that you're going to now spend 40 years wandering around in the wilderness until you learn some lessons about me that i'm your provider that i'm going to care for you so they spend these years in the desert in the wilderness where there is no bread and so god gives them bread from heaven manna and they spend these years in the wilderness where there is no water so he opens up miraculously a rock and water comes pouring out to meet the thirst of god's people it is the place of scarcity where people must rely on the abundance and provision of god there's literal wilderness in our lives and the lives of the people who flocked out to john Um, there's lots of other kinds of wilderness experience too maybe for some of us it's uh a, pl- a place of brokenness and loss in our lives, maybe even this past year. Maybe it's a time of, of physical brokenness. Things just don't work the way they used to and the way they're supposed to. Maybe that there are broken relationships, a struggling marriage, or struggling with your kids or struggling with your parents, or estrangement from a friend. Maybe it's broken dreams. It have become a wilderness experience for you. Or maybe it's nothing so dramatic, but just a sense of general unease, perhaps. A muting of life. Maybe suddenly all the things in life that have brought you comfort and care and pleasure, they now just ring hollow and, and nothing tastes. And you're a place of wilderness. I remember when I was a senior in high school um, and uh, had a... Visit from extended family and a cousin who was several years older than I am came and visited, and and it was the first time I remember getting in a conversation like this. I I, uh, I was a, a Christian and, and and he wasn't, and as we talked about it, he 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 laid this accusation you know at my feet. He said, you know, Christianity, I really think at the end of the day is just a crutch. And you likely have heard things like that um, and, and may well have said things like that. But, but here's what's going on in that comment. You know, in other words, there are some people who cannot handle the hard things of life, so they, they reach out for something, anything that might bring them comfort and stability, uh, for some sort of crutch. But unsaid there is, you know, the fact that the, the strong people, you know, the strong people like me don't need a crutch. They don't need religion. They don't need something like that because we have resources of our own if we dig down deep. They can handle the things that life brings to us. And I've got some sympathy for that in this sense. If you look around and talk to people that are Christians, you may see a disproportionately a number of those who came to faith at a particularly hard point in life. A life where you can honestly say they were looking for something. But here's the thing. Time in the wilderness brings you the realization that as vast as your own resources seem to be, there's a point in which you run out and they're all gone. You find out that there's a, limited, a limit to your competence and your skill, a limit to your luck and your health and your finesse. There's a limit to your ability to look polished and put together and to keep up the facade. There's a point at which you too run dry and find out that you are a person who needs another. That you're a person who needs God. That you're a person who needs what only God can do and bring into your life. In the wilderness, we find that out. We find there one who can ultimately sustain, feed, fill us. God alone. You see, those weak moments of life, they don't create your need for God. They expose it. They reveal it. They show us, in fact, that we have actually always been weak and always been exposed. That when we've lost someone we've loved, that life has always been fragile. that when our health suffers, that our bodies have always been susceptible to decay. That when a relationship breaks, it shows us we've always been the kind of person who did the kind of things that we did to help that very relationship fall apart. It doesn't create a need in us. It exposes us in our time in the wilderness. When we find that we are in the wilderness like this, we find that we are spiritually hungry. We find that our God is a God who comes and meets people in that very wilderness. Because these people come and they say, here is what is true of me. And notice what they come to John with. They come confessing their sins. Because these people realize at this moment in life that at the end of the day, the most central and significant thing they have to deal with as they come to God, the very things in their lives that have driven them from God, that have allowed them to rebel against God, that there are things in their life and things in their heart that are shaking their fist at God and they must be forgiven and paid for and healed by God Himself. And as a sign of this, they come and they are baptized by John. And for John, this this baptism of John was unlike anything anybody in this culture knew, this Jewish culture knew. Because in the Old Testament, there are many many ceremonial washings that you would go through. For example, if you were entering into the temple, you would ceremoniously wash your hands as a symbol of your need to be cleansed. And if you were a a Gentile, a non-Jew, as Uh, Mark's audience was, and and you came to faith in the God of Israel and wanted to become a full-fledged convert to Judaism, then then you would have undergone a special baptism for proselytes, for people that were coming from the outside in. But here's the thing, both with that kind of washing and the washings the Israelites would do, for instance, on the way into the temple, all of those other washings were washings in which you washed yourself. You washed your own hands. You dump water over yourself. But when they come out to the desert and meet John, he says, no, 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 no. You must be washed by another. There are spots that you just cannot reach. So you must be plunged in the water by someone else. And when you walked out to John, and you stepped into the river, you were saying, okay, that's true. Come and wash me now. Because, God, I cannot do it myself. Are you willing to be washed? In all those spots, you can't wash yourself. Are you willing to be cleansed thoroughly? Because that's what John comes to proclaim. There is something new here. A cleansing that goes straight through and that deals with the deepest ache of our hearts and the deepest offense of our lives. Our sin that separates us from God. Next week when we see Jesus step onto the scene, we're going to see more about what it means that He came to deal with our sin. But these people, when they heard it, they knew there is something broken and I need it fixed. And I cannot do it myself. My friend that I spent time with this week, all these momentous things that were happening all around him, in one real sense, he, he just he didn't see it as it was unfolding. And he just sort of now looks back over the years and is just kind of dumbfounded about the momentous times that he lived through. See, John the Baptist steps onto the scene and Mark gives us his gospel so that we might know that momentous times are here. That the King is coming. That in fact, the King has come. And He is Jesus. May we not miss Him May we not be asleep at the wheel as we hear of this news and see this King who has come. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, put it this way when he talks about John's message in these very verses. He said, it's as if lights were coming on and then suddenly the message was this. Wake up out of your dreams and into the real world that is breaking in right now, right here. The world of God coming, stepping into flesh. The king has arrived. That's what the book of Mark is about. Our king here. Let's pray. Father, we pray to dig the wax out of our ears, rub the sleep out of our eyes. She You would wake us up in the many ways we need to be woken up to see for the first time or to remember again that the King is coming, and the fact the King has come. And that changes everything. We pray these next number of months as we look at Mark that You would unfold that glorious reality for us. Change us, because that is what You came to do. We look to You, our King, in the name of Jesus. Amen.